This season is sponsored by Future Farm, the revolutionary meatless meat food company from Brazil. They're cooking up products which can match and exceed our juicy meaty favourites on taste, texture and sizzling flavour using only 100% natural ingredients. My favourite? There's too much choice. But if I had to choose, hands down it would be the future meatballs and future mints in my classic lasagna dish. And get this, they're standing up for some pretty big things too, like reclaiming the Amazon rainforest back by fostering the movement towards GMO-free and deforestation-free products in place of those that are unethical and illegal. Definitely not just another plant-based brand, hey? Very up my street. The full Future Farm range is available now at Sainsbury's. Hello and welcome to the Crazy Sexy Food Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Harley-Young. This podcast is all about the love of food and how it plays a part in our lives. I sit down with well-known personalities, industry insiders, and people who, well, just love their food to find out all about their life, career, and favorite tastes along the way. This week, I'm joined by Lorraine Candy, which is a total dream come true. As a teenager, Lorraine was my idol. As the former editor of Elle magazine, she provided the advice, style, and influence I needed on a daily basis. Present day, she is a multifaceted powerhouse, a mother of four, a writer, journalist, a fellow podcaster, and a devoted open water swimmer. Through her podcast, Postcards from Midlife, and her frequent articles on being a mother in a modern world, Lorraine is the go-to woman on parenting, dealing with teenagers, and everything in between. Aside from this, she was also at the helm of Sunday Times Style Magazine as editor-in-chief, as well as the luxury content director of the Sunday Times newspaper. Last summer, she stepped away from both publications to focus on writing her book, Mum, What's Wrong With You? 101 Things Only Mothers of Teenage Girls Know, which has just been released. I'm quite fascinated slash nervous about this topic, but think it's a very important conversation. Lorraine, it is such a pleasure. Welcome to Crazy Sexy Food. Oh, you're too kind. Um, <laughs> I love to meet Elle fans because that was some of the happiest days of my life editing that magazine. I just, I just loved it and I loved the readers so much as well. Do you know what is funny about my time when I was religiously reading it is I... I'm quite old school for a 33-year-old. I still use a Filofax. I still like print magazines and, I know, (laughs) Um, and newspapers. And I remember on the release date, I also, I don't know if this is a good thing or bad thing on your side of things, but I wouldn't subscribe to it because I didn't want someone to choose the magazine for me. I wanted to go to WH Smith and choose the copy and I'd always choose the one second from the back. Well, we live in London. I've probably been to that WH Smith and rearranged them so probably. that Elle was everywhere. Oh, yeah, of course, I was always of doing course. that. But I just wanted like the nice, the shiny one that, you know, the people always used yes, to like, if there was like yeah. a little free nail varnish, someone would have stolen the one at the front. <laughs> and like, I just wanted it super clean. No one could touch it. I'd spend an hour or so by myself at home. And that was just bliss. <laughs> oh, the good old days. Lovely to hear. <laughs> so how are you? Well, I'm quite perky. This is um, the book is on the bookshelves, which is kind of nerve wracking. Um, it's my first book, so 
you know, it's actually quite hard work writing a book, which was was a bit of a shock. For, for I've been a journalist a million years and written very big pieces, but writing a book is so personal. It's so personal. Um, mm. So I'm in a very perky mood. The sun's out, obviously, and I'm we're back in the lakes and um, Lido's as well, which obviously for my mental health is very good for me. Absolutely. And have you had breakfast today? I have. I've got um, a new habit for breakfast um, as I've entered my midlife years. I mean, I've never been terribly interested in food. It's not one of the driving forces of my life. My mum was a terrible cook. Um, I think most mums of that (laughs) generation were. So it never really features it. But when you get to midlife, you really have to make an effort to change your lifestyle because of the mm. fluctuating hormones. So I have to have a protein breakfast. Um, so I okay. usually have two eggs um, and the obviously the one of a million avocados, which um, my teens eat. So yeah, so two eggs is a protein keeps you going a bit longer. I have found makes you feel a bit better. And obviously we're, we're sort of speaking at the end, we hope, fingers crossed, of um, a pretty uh, surreal year. Uh, as mentioned, as we all know, you have four kids. I think three of them are teenagers now. How was that experience all being together um, in close proximity? Yes, Yes, I've got four kids. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take a deep breath. Um, There are 10, a little girl of 10, a boy of 14, and then two teenagers, 17 and 18. Um, And it was, unfortunately, it was the pivotal year for my two eldest girls. So um, my eldest was going to university and absolutely everything was cancelled. Her whole summer was cancelled. She was 18 in August. And I mean, it really did whip away that. It's a real rite of passage that summer after leaving Mm. school. She couldn't have, they couldn't say goodbye to all their friends. You know, she'd been at the same school since she was six years old. It was really, it was a lot, I think, for them to take on. And my 17-year-old, who was then 16, had her GC, both of them had their exams cancelled. So they had to kind of deal with that as well. And then we had to deal with getting my daughter to Bath, leaving home, the first child leaving home through the pandemic as well and it was just it was really difficult I think it was also difficult for them to be at home with us because teenagers don't really want to be with they're trying to separate from you and when they're trapped in a house with you and sitting on their laptops all day getting up and sitting in their beds instead of going to school you know just sort of learning from home it's really their mindset you know we had to do a lot of work around keeping them active and making them happy and getting them outside you know our dog was quite useful actually I I was so glad we had a dog because there's no way you can get a teenager to go on a walk unless you say you know we'll have to give the dog away (laughs) (laughs) so they don't want to separate from the dog they love the dog yeah (laughs) but I do think it was a cataclysmic time for teenagers mental health I think it was really difficult and I know a lot of teenagers went into a terrible decline I do a bit of work with Shout the text volunteer um, okay. charity and it's amazing it, it deals with everyone on on text and I, I've volunteered for them before and the Royal Foundation run it and they had seen a gigantic increase in self-harm um, texts and teenagers becoming incredibly anxious from all backgrounds it isn't just um, more deprived or more difficult backgrounds all all teenagers because their brains are being rebuilt at this part of their life were really struggling during the pandemic but you know they're really resilient people teenagers Mm. so you know they Mm. did I think they've come out of it pretty well actually my kids um and I think it's it's just a thing to look back on and see what they learned from isn't it I mean I'm sure you we all felt the same 
everyone was affected in different ways, regardless of what your circumstances were. But I did sort of, my heart did go for, out to these kids who were starting university and yeah. just not getting that experience that... No, nothing. You know, Sitting in a room really all got. day. I mean, yeah. she was not only trapped in her hat halls, she was trapped in her room in her halls. So she went from her bed to her laptop for three months Gosh. with nothing in... I mean, she was, you know, it really did almost tip her over the edge and and I know everyone yeah. else as well it was just grim we did consider bringing her home but she really wanted to be in she wanted to have that experience away from home and and you know and they had a rotor of who could go in the kitchen and out of the kitchen and they were fined if they left their halls during oh it was God. it was really awful yeah. actually and the, quite intense sadly the the um, security girls that she where she was were, were very aggressive so it was very demoralizing as well they weren't allowed to have mm. their food delivered unless it was put in a certain place it's a lot to take on board on top of leaving home as I was about well. to say leaving home which is like one yeah. of the biggest things that was the biggest thing for me so I want to take it back a bit. You were raised in Cornwall, yep. beautiful place. I want to know what life was growing up, but I want to know it from sort of the food aspect. I know you've just mentioned that your mum wasn't a great cook, <laughs> but I want to know um, what she was cooking, uh, if anyone else was cooking, what food was on the table, was food important? Kind of paint the picture. Well, um, so I grew up in the 70s. I'm 52 now, so I was born in 68. Um, so I was in a very small village on the edge of Bodmin Moor um, in Cornwall. And, I, you know, it just wasn't something my mum was interested in. I'm sure other mums, she, I think of another generation, she perhaps would have worked. She would have been a working mum. But that opportunity, due to kind of her lack of education um, opportunities, meant that she just, I mean, there was just nowhere for her. There were no jobs for her that she wanted to do. And my dad worked shifts um, as a policeman. So our house was, I had a younger sister. So she was an, as a, a mum who worked from home more more than work, uh, worked out of the home. So, but she just didn't really, and she would be happy for me to say care about food. She just, it wasn't one of her skills. It was... Um, I would say it was almost the opposite, actually. So it was really what came out of the tin. <laughs> yeah. Or what could go with toast, maybe, sometimes. Okay. I remember going on a play date to, to a friend's house and um, she had this thing called garlic and it blew my mind. I'd never tasted garlic <laughs> before. <laughs> and, I mean, we had, to, you know, family meals were a really strong ritual in our house as well. She, My mum mm. was really good about bringing us together for this one point of the day where we would all eat together and share stories of the day. So it wasn't, it wasn't about avoiding eating. It was just not something she was interested in doing. So I kind of grew up not really being massively interested in in food because it was it wasn't I always remember butterflies there was a sitcom at the time called butterflies which starred Wendy Craig and she was a diabolical cook and it was part of the humor of the um that this stay-at-home mum couldn't cook and you know so what was the point of her it's quite an emotional thing and my mum was kind of like that she just wasn't interested in it so I always say that she whatever the primary color on the plate was everything else kind of went that color so we would have an all green meal or a, or, a, or an all brown meal or an all white meal so yeah but she did make great sandwiches and I always remember the tradition of getting home from school um, and then having a massive doorstep white bread sandwich and it wasn't yeah. you know we were we had to be careful about the amount of money spent on everything so I don't think of course, yeah. you know food wasn't really the you know other things were were worth spending the money on I think when I was little but um, as a consequence when I left home at sixteen I just didn't know 
uh, I came to London to work on the Wimbledon News. I was very lucky to have been offered an apprenticeship and I just didn't know where to start. I remember one of the first things I did was grill a frozen chicken breast and wonder, I just wonder why it caught fire in the house. <laughs> ringing my mum saying, it's on fire. Why is it caught fire? And she oh, said, well, you no. have to defrost it first. So <laughs> and that has been, I've started from there on my food journey. Um, and it then when I only got better, right? Well, I left home when I left home, I, I didn't really want to eat meats. Um, I realised that I had a choice over what I eated. So I, I was uncomfortable eating um, dead things. So I stopped eating meat at, at 17 and didn't really start again until I was about 30 so um, when I was quite ill (laughs) because obviously I was a hopeless cook (laughs) so I lived on pot noodle for quite a long time in fact fact, I lived on it for so long that when I left Marie Claire where I worked they bought me I think they bought me 48 um, tubs of it because they thought it was so funny that I was eating I mean I don't know how my system survives quite frankly because I I guess I was just used to it but I am a a late convert to lovely food so and I've been incredibly lucky working on fashion magazines to travel the world and eat in some of the best Mm. restaurants and have private meals cooked for me by amazing chefs so it's been quite a food journey for me and I mean you mentioned that you left home at 16 what were you like as a teenager you know what at that time what did did you always want to get into journalism did you always Mm. want to write was that sort of yes it was a real drive going to be the plan yeah I think I was lucky to know what I wanted to do and it was a huge driving Mm. force for me I wanted to I just loved magazines and I would do as you did really be desperate I mean it was the the heyday of magazines so I was desperate for just 17 smash all of those magazines I would wait be so eager to go and get them from the local news agent especially in a small town like Cornwall they brought the world into us and they didn't Mm. they curated things in a way that I found just absolutely brilliant and I was fascinated by all of it and you know I wanted to be a journalist I wanted to travel and I'm fascinated by people's stories and at that point I was thinking well if I get into journalism I can decide whether I go into magazines or stay see if I'm any good at journalism and I worked on a local I was doing my A-levels and then um, I wrote to the Cornish Times and they said oh come in and work for the summer just be an intern and I spent the summer there and just had the most amazing time got my first byline on the front page for the local fair and they said well do you want to stay you can stay and by that point I'd realized I could probably get an actual apprenticeship which they didn't do they weren't part of the scheme at the Cornish Times so I just wrote to I think I wrote 100 letters all around the country to see who would take someone so young with no qualifications on an apprenticeship. And the editor of the Wimbledon News wrote back and said, we'd have you. I think they needed more girls, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And I said, great, I'll come up for an interview. And um, I didn't have qualifications, but I had, you know, several months of covering stories. When you work on a small paper, you get sent to do quite a lot of things. And if you're competent and capable then you get the experience. And I think that experience counted for more than A-levels. And I always thought, oh, maybe I'll go back and do, um, because no one in my family had been to university and I know my mum was quite keen. (laughs) I thought I might go. (laughs) Um, But, you know, they were always brilliant. My parents said, if this is what you really want to do, then then go and do it. And actually I got a, uh, the apprenticeship was, was brilliant and I happened to land on the Wimbledon News with quite a lot of great report. Piers Morgan had started the same week. Oh, really? So I landed oh, wow. on a paper that really produced a phenomenal team of journalists. Key you know, so yeah. it was it was a good editor who had a good eye for talent, Andrew Palmer. Um, and I think he worked us really hard. We had um, a news editor who was like a national newspaper news editor. He was unrelenting and we didn't get a moment's 
piece. He really trained us and it was a bit brutal. <laughs> um, but he was uh, called Mac and he was from Guyana. And, oh, oh, you know, he brought had worked all around the world. So he really pushed us. Um, and I think I just was that, that perfect storm of the right people, the right thing. The, and yeah. also Wimbledon at the time was, you know, there's so much news. So... <laughs> You know, and I just grappled with the features pages and said, let me help do these because I think Lisa's probably, I'm probably better at this. And then I started working on newspapers. Well, you're, you know, from your dad, how it works is I started working on newspapers at the weekends where you can freelance and the Sunday Mirror offered yeah. me um, regular shifts. And they said, if you give, I did the apprenticeship right the way through to the end. And then the Sunday Mirror said, come, come and work for us permanently. So it kind of went from there. But I did know, and I think it's hard if you don't know, and I know certainly with my kids that they don't all know. My eldest knows. She wants to be a car. She wants to work with cars. So she's gone to do mechanical engineering. Oh, wow. and she's, Oh, my God. How cool. I, we found a diary the other day of when she was nine, and she'd written, I want to I want to be a car engineer. So she's really been quite fun. Wow. <laughs> and that's what she's doing at, at university. So. I love that. Oh, my yeah. God, that's wicked. I mean, it's interesting because I, I mean, I didn't know about this part of your life, about the fact that you sort of didn't go to university and do all of that. And interestingly, because I was the first person in my family to go to university. And if I, I don't keep regrets, but if I had, if I could do it all again, I wouldn't have gone to university. Really? Because I went to Mm. university knowing I wanted to be a photographer, went to London College of Communication, did a BA in photography I'm not going to start discussing my opinions on the degree, but I didn't have a great time. And actually, by the end of it, because I just wasn't a quitter, I think it became more about, I need to just get a degree so I can say I'm the first person in the family to have one. But actually, what I could have learnt out and about in life with a camera in my hand, I think would have benefited me tenfold. And it's just nice to hear, like, you know, someone like you who has you know, risen the ranks over the years. And I mean, maybe things are a bit different nowadays, but... Well, I think the media landscape has changed so dramatically now. Anyway, it's a very different... We consume our news in a very different way. And I know Mm. my daughters don't buy magazines, so Mm. um, they only buy kind of retro magazines in, you know, music magazines and I think Mm. Rolling Stone or something they might buy and collect, but they don't buy actual magazines anymore, which is a real shame. And I know from the sales, they just don't sell anymore in the same volume. No, of course. I mean, that's actually what I wanted to ask was that, you know, you were kind of at the helm during what I think is sort of like this golden era of magazines. Mm. And now it's all digital. You know, we're going to have children growing up who would never even ever buy a magazine who, you know, everything is consumed online. How do you feel about the crossover to digital? Um, You know, and how has that industry changed in the wake of social media and just everything being at our fingertips? I think it's actually an amazing change to see and um, we were quite early adopters at L we worked for about three years we worked across both the website and um, the magazine and I'd skilled the team up to understand how to do that because storytelling online is sort of similar and different to storytelling or it's visually incredibly different but it's still what it makes you feel. And I think that's the bottom line with everything um, at the moment. If you're going to tell a story, it should be what it makes the listener, viewer, watcher, reader feel. And once you've worked out what they are feeling, then you can adapt how you want that content to look. So I think a lot of 
um, young women do still buy print magazines, but I think they're very specific about it. And I think they really like the visual element of it. I will always buy Vogue. Uh, that's And I think a lot of young women will always buy Vogue. But I think those more niche magazines, ID, those magazines have a real power now because you've at, if you want that, you will go out of your way to go and get that. And those shoots are, are, are epic, epic storytelling, quite extraordinary. And if you love fashion like I do, I still want to see that, um, but I do want to see it online as well. But no, it won't be the same um, online. It's a different experience online. But I think it's amazing that you can see stuff from all, you know, all over the world. It's a really international, mm-hmm. it's instant and immediate and it helps you define what's going on. It makes you much more knowledgeable. And, and also the people are telling the stories themselves. So whereas... And I think that was really made clear with Naomi Osaka, actually, when she talked last week about not coming to press conferences after matches. Good for her, I think. But she's in control of her story now. She was handing it to a predominantly male, older white male press team to handle. So they had control of her story, but she has it now. And I think online has meant that the big, if you want to tell a story as a celebrity or a thinker or a scientist, you are in control of that now. You can absolutely do it the way you want to. And I think that's no bad thing. I think um, the positive up of that, the downside is the, obviously the darker side of the internet where the the stories are not nice and uh, aren't helpful, they're harmful, but, and also that you get a quite curated feed based on an algorithm, which you know, when we did a lot of the work we did at Elle, which wasn't fashion and beauty, which was more feminism and telling stories of women who'd been through enormous trauma and that we could learn from big campaigns. You, if you don't look for that, you won't get served that by the algorithm, whereas a magazine mm. you will delight you with that. And you'll say, oh, my God, I didn't know that. Oh, I really feel strongly about that. I should do something about it. Whereas if you're on Instagram, your feed is just going to give you what your feed is going to give you. So that's Absolutely. a bit of a shame. I always talk to my daughters about that. They're on Snapchat mostly, that you're only getting what Snapchat wants you to see based on what you've looked at. So, you know, change your feed. But they'll come off apps like Snapchat and TikTok and then go back in so that the feed is different. It's um, They're quite savvy oh, about it, okay. you know, so they change yeah. what they're being offered, um, which I think is interesting. I think the opportunities of how people reach us eventually, and particularly audio, I think it's fascinating. It's brilliant. I, I think it's really, really exciting. And I would say to old school print journalists, because many are extremely resistant to this free content, this world of online, that you've got to engage with it. You really do have to engage with it. And it's not necessarily about the numbers. It's about the engagement. It's about what people are telling you back and what you're learning from. It's such a direct access to those listening. I wish I'd had that as a magazine editor. You know, there was a six-week delay from putting it to press to it coming out, and that we planned six months in advance. So it it was a strange way. If I'd had instant response and um to it and I'd have been able to plan a bit better you mentioned um earlier on in the chat about when you embarked into like the fashion world and you you're sort of your eyes were opened to food and yes, going to all these was. wonderful places oh around the gosh. world but I'm actually interested in the relationship between food within the fashion industry yeah. you know um over the years it's had a bit of a possible negative connotations towards it whether it be um, the size of models that are being used, uh, women fainting on shoots or whatever. Do you think it's got better, the relationship and the acceptance of women of different sizes? Well, yeah. we know it's got better in terms of like age, uh, in terms Hopefully. of uh, size diversity. Um, I just wanted to know what your views yeah, are. Yeah, I think it's 
I get asked about this a lot. So there's two parts of this, I think. There is a very old school male attitude towards fashion generally, which belittles it, uh, makes it appear to be shallow, something we shouldn't be interested in, and tells, and, and actually women are guilty of this, tells a consistent story that women in fashion don't eat. And it's uh, it's patronising, it's rude, um, it's unhelpful, and it's a, a horrible attitude to have around a whole industry which contributes a phenomenal amount to the economy. It's the second biggest contributor to the British economy fashion. So it's belittled in many, many ways. And I know that comes mm. from the patriarchy. I hate to say that out loud. It comes from a very old school way of looking yeah. at women and what they value and what they spend money on, etc. Now, mm. within the industry, there have been, I believe, pockets of very bad behavior um, around young women and the way they are treated as models. Um, I think we perhaps didn't take as much notice as quickly as we should have done. And we certainly should have done as magazine editors. And I regret a bit of that. I regret not speaking out saying I'm not going to shoot this girl today because she doesn't, she's not well. I don't feel she's um, being looked after or cared for or managed properly. We should have been more um, vocal about it but you know we we were as, <laughs> as soon as we started to mobilize I think we have been um, pretty good about trying to change um, and I've certainly said um, had very specific rules around um, the way we shoot women and how we shoot them and how we treat young girls as models um, particularly as a mother of, of young girls and I think it is absolutely changing and I think there are some really great role models on social media um, of all different sizes um, talking about what feels good um, and I love to see uh, women girls models of different sizes across all the magazines and I've tried very hard to do that in in my career and it is quite hard to do it because above you there's a layer of approval that is just often male and often you know if it's not going to make money we don't want to do it but it, you know you have 12 covers a year at least four of them should be the right thing to do they should be not about making money or selling issues they should be about a message and drawing your community to you and changing things because it's a very powerful place to be um, with young women when they they love a magazine. As you know, it's very influential on them. But I think more, a lot more is being done. And I think we as a society have to change our view of what we want to see as well because we have to buy those magazines with different models on the cover and not say, well, that's not what a magazine cover looks like. We have to change our mindset. Perhaps the older generation have to change our mindset around it. Um, and we just need to take care of everyone in a, a kinder way and al allow them to be to have a say. I mean, you, you know, many of the big supermodels that um, were around in the 80s and 90s, Cindy Crawford, I think, has just given an interview within Style in the States talking about this. They were asked as young girls to do things that they shouldn't have been asked to do on shoes, to take their clothes off and all of them. Yeah. You know, we need to empower them to say no to that and not feel that the whole of the rest of their career is, you know, it could be damaged. Um, but I think all the toxic elements, certainly at the top of model agencies and you know, are beginning to be, but it's not just fashion. It has to be everything. It has to be TV. It has to be actors, actresses. It has to be every industry. And, and also there are, Absolutely. you know, the food, there are food issues with people who work in all industries. You just, you know, you just hear about it more in fashion, I think, because, mm -hmm. and I think that we don't, we can't stigmatize or shame any woman, whether she's very thin or whether she's not very thin. We, we shouldn't be making comments. We just simply shouldn't be making comments around what women look no. like. We just shouldn't be no. doing it. I mean, it's hard no, to say. 
Yeah, no, 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 I, I completely agree with you. Before we bring it fully back to the food, you have just released your first book, Mum, What's Wrong With You? Um, let's talk about it because although I'm 33, I do sometimes feel like I am still a teenager. As soon as I walk back into my parents' house, something happens to me mentally and I just revert back. <laughs> so for anyone who doesn't know sort of what you're focusing on, can you sort of give a bit of a synopsis? Yeah, it's just, it's a book really aimed at the mums of teenage girls because it's a very unique relationship because they do seem to reject you in a very brutal way when you uh, when they get to their teenage. But part of that is their neurology. Their brains are kind of being rebuilt between the ages of 12 and 17. Yeah. Um, but I've just felt the market was missing an ordinary, comforting, reassuring book about how to live with teenagers because there are lots of little things you can do which will make your life a bit more harmonious and the reasons they behave maybe behaving in the way they're behaving are often physiological neurological hormonal there's a lot going on and once you understand it I think you can take a bit of time out. I had a parenting column in the Sunday Times magazine and interviewed a lot of experts so I've put a bit of personal in there with my girls and a bit of um, expert advice but it's it's more sort of try this or try that it's not a to-do list there's a lot of parenting books that make you feel a bit rubbish and that you've got to do all these things by the end of the week or your children are going to hate you forever and actually that's not helpful I don't think and also I've worked in an industry predominantly with a female audience for so so long that you know mm. I just thought it would be useful to put what I've learned you know I've worked with so many young women a lot of young women who are 19 20 as well and I've learned how what they've talked about their relationships with their mums and things so I just put it all in one place and it and hopefully it's helpful to people what is the most common uh, question or complaint that that mothers come to you about with, with, with dealing with their teenagers? I think the most common thing is just why yesterday when I put them to bed, they were lovely and they just loved me to bits and I was their hero. This morning she hates me and she's really illogical and the mess is, un, you know, everything is lost. What has happened overnight? And it, it sort of feels like overnight because you've spent 10 years with this amazing, wonderful cutie, mm. this loveliness. And then the next day she just is like a dragon. She wants to set fire. I mean, there was a point when both of mine couldn't be in the same room as me because my breathing was annoying for them. <laughs> so, it was too loud. <laughs> And that is so okay, I mean, common. My, that, that, that happens with me and my husband. So I obviously have some issues that I need to deal with. <laughs> yes, the nose blown. That's my husband. Really annoying. Oh, just ever eating. I have a oh, massive issue eat- with people chewing next to me. Yeah, I can't. The chewing is, yeah, they're yeah. actually my 17 year old says, if you chew in front of me, I have to leave home immediately now. Stop it. Yeah. yeah. But I just thought there's got, you know, that's what. And actually, that's perfectly normal and you aren't doing anything wrong yeah. and you haven't made bad humans and there's a lot of stuff going on underneath that's really hard for them to deal with so let's give them a bit of a break that's that's basically the theme <laughs> and I guess I mean I feel like this is a really terrible question to ask but is there is there a secret if any of how to just live live harmoniously together or is it just going to be up and down because there are too many factors involved would you know what food is one of the secrets actually it's very oh it's when you don't have extreme issues when you haven't got severe eating disorders or severe mental health problems this book is not for that there are expert books that are better for that Mm -hmm. the tiny rituals of everyday life where you connect are really important. And often when we get to teenage, they just disband. We disband those rituals because you can't physically make a teenager sit down and eat with you. 
But if you can keep, so you're not going to be doing that every day like you did when they were little. But if you can eat with them, this was the number one piece of advice I got from all the experts all around the world. Eat with your teenagers. Do not let them, not every day, once a week maybe, just have a ritual. Connections and rituals are really important. Have a ritual where you sit down and eat with them. And that obviously they're going to make, it might be very difficult to do that. <laughs> but we have an absolute rule that once a week, all of us will sit together and eat. There will be no phones at the table. I will cook whatever they want, nice. however they want, yeah. or they can take away or thing. But even I've worked with... Um, psychiatrists who work on the front line of mental health and it is the one thing they try to do with families in trauma is bring them together to eat together um, if they don't eat in the kitchen maybe you can eat in their room with them you, you know it's just trying to don't let that connect if you've got a 12 13 year old and you can see them separating don't let that connection go really root it in their minds that once a week they're going to sit and eat with you um, and as I say I've learned I came so late to cooking and, and I really had to get my act together when I was 33 and I had my first baby I just thought Christ I've, I've just got to learn to cook this is what's got to happen it's not my happy yeah. place but I've got to make it happy that we eat together so I will have to um, learn to make food and I've had a sort of journey <laughs> of it ever since. <laughs> it's interesting you say that I mean I, I absolutely couldn't agree more and I think as the byproduct of parents well maybe not so my dad because of the nature of his work as you know he's out in the evenings evenings yeah (laughs) but my mum was very um I don't want to use the word strict but she was very adamant that we sit down as a family whoever is around from childhood all the way through to teens now I have older brothers who are considerably older than me so once they'd moved out it might have just been me and my mum but the conversation and the dialogue across that dinner table was really pivotal it wasn't we weren't you know trying to work out world peace but it was talking about your day talking Mm. about what irritated you what what was great at school what your what your concerns were what what you were doing on the weekend and I think that that's so important and I think as you say like as well like food sort of transpires sort of over everything um it doesn't matter who you are where you're from you know anyone common it's a common language right yeah you know so it's pretty simple I mean you don't even have to talk actually you can just what you're saying by giving them food is that I love you and I'm here for you Mm. and you matter in my life Mm. even if we've had the most hateful time and I might have said the most terrible things I'm still feeding you. So it doesn't really matter what else happens. I am still here. And that's kind of all they need in their to set around their subconscious, really, that you are still there. So I know people think, oh, well, I must cook an amazing meal and we must all sit down. But actually just, you know, if, if all four of you have a sandwich that's and nobody says anything, that is just as valuable that's fine. <laughs> with, yeah, you know, tr- in the troubled times. And they really, you know, sometimes they won't, they don't want to do it, but I make sure once a week we do do it. And certainly since my eldest left home, when she comes back, it's the first thing we do. And, and you can do it through, you know, packed lunch with them, or you can just sit on the floor and eat with them. It doesn't have to be a formal thing, just being together. A whole and formal sit down dinner. Yeah. Then. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's nice. Likewise, you obviously have a very successful podcast, which we were talking about. I know, it's recording. Cards from Midlife. <laughs> How has that happened? Which is just soaring. <laughs> um, sort of talk about that, because that's sort of like advice on parenting, amongst other topics. Um, 
I guess actually I'm going to ask you something quite personal um, and, I, and I feel like perhaps a lot of the demographic within my listeners might want to know about this. So, you know, I'm 33. I'm all about my career. I'm about to celebrate my second wedding anniversary. I just bought my first flat with my husband. Thinking about having children. You know, I hate this conversation about can women have it all? But as mm. someone who is sort of had this incredibly successful career whilst having four children, um, as someone who's about to possibly embark on what you've just done, what's your advice? <laughs> well, I tell you what you can't do. You can't do it all. That will break you. So, so you don't, okay. Um, okay. And also the have it all conversation is often uniquely leveled at women. No one's ever asked my husband if he could have it all and he's worked throughout the whole. So <laughs> um, yeah. it's, no. it is Everything in life is is a decision. There's no right time to do anything. Young women say to me, when should I have children? I said, well, you can't plan that. There is no right time. You need to be much more relaxed about it if you can. But it's about planning once you've worked, once you've ha- if you have a baby, what makes you feel really good about it within the context of what society kind of allows you to do because there isn't enough paternity leave available for men yet I don't think and I would say having an equal partnership really works and defining that in advance really defining in advance I think maybe Hannah for your generation it's a bit easier men expect to be much more involved where I look back and think really I should have sat down with my husband and said right do you know what I'm not going to do all the emotional labor on this I know you're going to help and you'll be there and you said just tell me what to do but then I've got to tell you what to do and that's really hard to think of all the things you need Mm -hmm. to do the list is enormous for me and all you're doing is waiting for instructions which is (laughs) so if you kind of defeats the whole object which just makes it very stressful (laughs) and you know I think if I'd sat down right at the beginning and said okay okay James this is what we need to do I need you you know what do you think needs to be done with these babies we had them very close together the girls are only 16 months apart which is Mm. poor planning on on our part but good planning and poor planning but it was just really hard work (laughs) take the amount of time off you want good people good companies will keep good people and it will come back I would I think it's sometimes young women get really stressed I really feel for them about oh I'm going to be a step behind in my career I won't be able to but actually having a baby is the most wonderful thing in the whole of the world and if you're lucky enough to get pregnant easily and not lose babies and not go through the awful trauma of, of IVF then it is the most wonderful thing in the world so take the time I mean I really I don't really regret anything in life. I do, I do wish I'd had longer on maternity leave with my first um, child. I think I had three months and it was just, it was okay. heartbreaking going back, heartbreaking. And I wasn't mm-hmm. mentally right to go back to work. I was editing Cosmopolitan at the time. Um, but, you know, ask for what you want as well. I think that's, you know, I said with my second, uh, with my third and fourth children, I'm not coming back unless I get a nine day fortnight. Um, and this is what I will deliver. Uh, in return for that I mean I did do think I worked extra hard but those were the days when there was a left kind of you know that was a hard ask saying I'm coming back with you know and but I was in a fortunate position where the magazine was based on what my plan so I kind of (laughs) I was in a strong I had a strong card to play Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm, and then mm -hmm. I when I came back with with Mabel my fourth I said I want a four-day week and that's you'll get the same work from me but I want to be able to pick her up and to absolutely know I can pick her up from school 
And also with each child, I changed the production schedules of the magazine so that I would finish. I worked out what was important to me and bedtime was really important to me. So I said, I will leave at five. Everything has to be done and ready by five. We'll move all the schedules around. But if I'm needed, I'm always available. And we will start half an hour earlier. And I talked to the teams about that. And everyone was happy with that, actually. Everybody wanted to start earlier and get out earlier anyway. So it was, but if I hadn't asked, I wouldn't have known the whole team was behind me for that. (laughs) Absolutely. I was just about to say, it is about just speaking up and saying what is going to make you feel comfortable and happy and but you have to offer what you can give the business back Mm. because I know Mm. sometimes women have asked me for two or three days a week um or job shares and things and we've trialed we trialed one which was a disaster so I had to say no I'm afraid I just can't make that work so maybe this is not the job where you can get what you need for your family and what you need for you um and people who've come and said I need to do this without I'd say yeah but how how can I supply what the business needs if you do that? I just, I can't work out. Can you come back with a plan of how the business will break? Because, you know, it's a very black and white, you know, it's a business, you're working for business, they're paying your salary. Just work out what works for them and works for you as well. And then see if you can have some flexibility around it. But if you don't ask, you won't know. And you should always ask. Absolutely. I was always taught that. You don't ask, you don't get. You're not being rude. (laughs) And it's the same around money. I really wish young women would come in and say, right, I need this. Every time I've interviewed a man for a job, they've cut the first thing they talk about is the money. Oh, absolutely, without fail, every single time. This is not what they're earning, it's what they want. Whereas I will say to women, What are your salary expectations? And they'll say, Oh, well, what is the salary of the job? No, no, I'm asking you your expectations for your value, what you think you are worth. So I think I think it's changing. I really hope it's changing. But talking about money Mm. is not a bad thing it's a really good thing we shouldn't be ashamed of it right taking all that advice on board having a chat with the hubby tonight <laughs> just tell him what you need no <laughs> and ask i mean him do you know what he's actually something. quite good yeah. yeah he said a couple things that i'm like yep tick like that you can you can hang around a little bit longer it's all good <laughs> um back to the food so you obviously said that your breakfasts are quite protein heavy what's a normal day in food for you well, it's, it really depends on what I'm doing because it's not, as I say, I've got a very odd mindset around it maybe or an, or a kind of, it's not a big, I don't think about it much, food. So if I don't eat, it doesn't, you know, I'm not that bothered about it. But I do like a biscuit. I'm quite keen on a biscuit. And I never, I hate any sense of depriving myself of something I want as well. So I'm not a massive bread fan. I don't really like the taste of bread so I will I'll eat a bit now and again but I'm not so I don't I'm not keen on sandwiches so I won't um have lunch maybe I have a I have a salad for lunch um it's been really interesting I've gone back to being vegetarian in the last um six weeks so I was kind of between the ages of sort of 33 and 45 back on meat I had a really severe iron deficiency and a ferritin deficiency which Oh, it's a long story. You can only get ferritin from from actual red meat. It was to do with my metabolism, I've and got an, I've got a ferritin deficiency. Yeah, it's well. really weird. That you can't stop. You can, yeah. There's nothing you can take that will. Be, no, <laughs> I mean, you can boost it by eating a ton of spinach, yeah. but um, I just gave. So in the end, I thought, well, I'll eat red meat once a week, and that's kind of you know, I was very uncomfortable about it, but I just got on with it, and um, 
I just have felt more and more uncomfortable recently with eating meat, just from a climate point of view and from what my girls are telling me and everything they're in. And just because I just felt I couldn't take an animal's, I just couldn't be part of that. I just, it's fine if you are, I just can't do it. So it felt uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So I've gone Mm -hmm. back to being a veggie. So I have tried to introduce a ton more vegetables. I'm not keen on vegetables, as it turns out, not keen on the taste, um, into my life. So peppers have come back, peppers and feta and um Mary McCartney is a friend of mine and she she sends me mushroom recipes because I do like a mushroom okay. yeah. <laughs> and mushrooms are, gr- are great actually they add in a lot you do eat quite a lot more cheese when you're a veggie um, but I do a lot of swimming and it makes you absolutely starving swimming so I'm a big on potato talk to me about this swimming yeah how did this start well it's um I like the, I've always loved the water and obviously I grew up in Cornwall so I, I can swim but I didn't I couldn't swim front crawl and I thought um I had terrible anxiety for the first time in my life when I was about 46 47 and this was just came out of the blue panic attacks completely out of the blue it's the most extraordinary thing and I thought well I'm losing my mind I'm I've broken my brain. I've done too much, too many things. But actually, it was the perimenopause. My estrogen levels and testosterone levels and progesterone levels were on the floor. And it affects your neurology. It affects your mood quite dramatically. I mean, some women have major depressive episodes. So I got myself onto HRT, which completely cured all of that. But in the meantime, I'd started to think, well, maybe I need to do a lot more exercise. I did a bit of um, mini triathlons because I like keeping fit. And I, then I discovered I couldn't do front crawl. So <laughs> to learn front crawl in a lake. And it just, I cannot tell you, it changed my life. It was, I, I could not, it, it was, I was so happy outdoors, swimming wow. in the sea, in the cold. The colder it was, the, the better I felt, the happier I was in a lake. So I just kind of took it up with gusto. I mean, I have done some quite big swims in, in relays and teams, but and I am an incredibly slow swimmer. You should talk to my swim coach. I don't, he's perplexed by why I'm so slow. It's just my meditation is the speed I it's the speed I go. Fine. And also technically front crawl is really hard to learn and I've only just it learned is, so a ton is, of it yeah. to be corrected. But um be I met the most amazing community of women. I've made the closest friends through the open water swimmers. And I just, I just can't think of a place where I'm calmer and happier than in the sea or in a lake, just repetitively swimming. I did try meditation. How but wonderful that you that. found that! Yeah, it's amazing. I love it. When, I love it when people just find their thing. It's you my know, thing, whatever yeah. it might be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. Um, now that you are a cook, what are some of your specialities at home? Well, I do a very good stuffed pepper for myself um but for the kids I do we do a kind of taco night which they love where you do sort of the mints and sometimes pork and then they love the fajita chicken strips and you just put it all over the table and then that's probably our favorite meal we we used to eat a lot of roast lunches on a Sunday afternoon but it was really my eldest used to love that and I used to do I'm really good at roast potatoes actually it's one of my skills um but when she left home we would just we couldn't do it because we'd sit down to it and there'd be an empty chair it's just awful (laughs) I couldn't have a I mean I haven't had a roast since about the second weekend she went I just can't face it I just miss her so much so we but that is a speciality of mine I do a lot of good rice brown rice things um because they're quite easy to cook. I love Ottolenghi. And I have to say, Anna Jones' new book, One Pot, is an absolute game changer. Even if you can't cook, 
it's just so amazing it's just the the even if you eat meat every day of your life it is the best um it's just got Mm -hmm. the best vegetarian recipes and also mary is about mccartney's about to come out with uh, i think there's over a hundred veggie recipes which are all based on memories of her childhood that book is about to come out soon so i will be getting that she has a great website where there's a, a lot of recipes so yeah i do i mean i'm a big egg fan i've got to often be you know, I have to try not to go overboard on eggs. But I tell you what I can't eat, and I can't eat a root vegetable apart from a potato. I can't have Why? butternut squash. or And if, you, if you, I, I would have to, I can't even stand the smell of beetroot. I would have to cross the road if I saw a beetroot to avoid it. So it's a, there's a long list, as my friends would say, of things I will not eat. <laughs> Most of them are the things that grow well, underground. I don't like it. Well, mine are mushrooms. I can't eat a mushroom. <laughs> isn't it funny how people have a very good vegetarian weird (laughs) i know i tried to be a vegetarian and it just didn't work out because the only option was mushroom every time i went out so i was like well this isn't going to work out very well is it so or beetroots and everything so is butternut squash i mean if i have to leave a restaurant if butternut squash is on it i can't even bear the thought i'm going to be honest with you i'm probably going to lose a lot of fans but i really don't understand why butternut squash exists i just think think. it's the most boring (laughs) boring boring thing in the world I will never cook with it it's a waste of time and that's how I, I did um I did it on Instagram I did a week of butternut squash recipes to see if I could get over it and I couldn't no it's just it's inedible like sweet potato no, it's just no. inedible I can't eat it at all I've got a friend that can't even look at eggs when that she can eat them scrambled but she can't look at an egg if she can see the yolk that's how <laughs> I think that is oh wow okay <laughs> I mean, I love eggs. That's why I could never be vegan because I love eggs too yeah. much. Where are some of your favourite restaurants? Oh, I've been so lucky. I've just been so lucky to be in London. There was in Notting Hill an amazing um, Chinese restaurant called Uli's, which um, sadly it, oh, it does exist. But Mr. No. Uli, as we call him, yeah, Michael, it, who used to run it. Yes. Um, but we would go in and half the Rolling Stones would be in there. It was like a tiny... Yeah very normal local neighborhood restaurant um and we lived in Lambert Group for a long time and um, I remember going to Uli's it's that's a... where I grew up oh did you <laughs> Bassett Road yeah. we lived where did you say... oh I grew up um <laughs> off I'm not going to say the road name because my parents are still there but just off Oxford Gardens oh very near yeah so Uli's was yeah. you will have gone to Uli's and yeah. the yeah, sun yeah, yeah. and the, on, and the um, cow on and... Saints Road yeah that's mm-hmm. it yeah so there's all uh, a lot of restaurants there now um we live in North London so um we are very near an amazing restaurant called Singapore Gardens, which is, I know Giles Corran going gave there it, on Saturday. Well, the Giles Corran gave it a review, and it's very difficult now to get into Singapore Gardens. It's been here in Swiss Cottage for a thousand years. Yeah, <laughs> um, and then I'm a friend so of mine um, runs Lena Stores. Um, they set it up. Um, her husband uh, Hannah and Max, and I just—it's the most amazing place to eat. And they've got a new branch in King's Cross, which is fantastic. Um, yes, and I love that as well so yeah we do we, we we pretty much eat out I would say once a week as a family and we spent a lot of time obviously in Wagamama um, with the kids because it's just perfect for for everybody and yeah they don't mind stuff being thrown all over the place you know we we always tried to take our kids out um, with us whenever we went out for dinner instead of sort of having babysitters and I mean I know people friends of us were like oh my god you brought them with you <laughs> yeah um but they were always pretty we always had quite a lot of fun and then in Cornwall obviously I I go a lot we have a house in Cornwall and um we eat out quite a bit down there as well in Padstow Mm. and all these places that were very tiny when I first um went down and and now I've come 
kind of quite big and quite well known and there's some really oh, lovely yeah. places now in North Cornwall beautiful food in Cornwall yes beautiful. never used to be but it's now can you make a Cornish pasty I had a brief stint working in a Cornish pasty factory when I was uh, a teenager just for money at the weekends and uh, I don't think I would <laughs> I can make them I can't stand Cornish pasties I just I can't eat that much you know pastry I'm not a it sits me over the yeah. edge so. <laughs> yeah my husband loves them he has about four a day when we go down Oh, really? Yeah, oh, but wow. Malcolm Barnicut, the baker down there, if, if anyone ever goes to Cornwall, you have to have a Barnicut's pasty. They are the best in the world. Okay, noted. I haven't been to Cornwall since I was about 14. Right, I finished my chats with a few quickfire questions. Oh, go on, do it, do it. My favourite snack of all time is a packet of crisps. What's your favourite flavour of crisps and why? I like ready salted, just plain. Okay. You, because like are we talking like a kettle chip? No, like I don't like them. Walkers. I don't like posh ones. I like walkers. Walkers crisps. Yeah. They're my favorite. Yeah. Or a what's it? Oh, so it's something quite thin. Cheesy what's oh, it? I, I like them. Yes. Or the Marks and Spencer's chipsticks. They're they're just plain, but they have a lot of salt in them. If I've got a hangover, yeah. I'll eat about four packets of them. <laughs> I love I love asking this question to people. It's just... It's... A packet. Cheap crisps. I feel like it really says a lot about someone as well. Okay. What is the craziest food you've ever eaten? Well, as you, the list of what I won't eat is... If, if we start at beetroot, we're not going to get crazy, are we? Beetroot would be the craziest food I've ever eaten. I, I don't... Oh, God. What crazy foods have I eaten? I've been in restaurants where they've served stuff that's foaming and fluffing and I, i've not right, even yeah. known what it is that i'm agreeing to eat yeah um, oh god i don't okay. know i just say no to a lot of i know people are adventurous but i just say no i can't eat that i'm gonna take beetroot as your answer because i quite like oh, that it's awful beetroot <laughs> can't even smell it people bring it out to frighten me like you like like, like taking the lid off and the spiders really? underneath they'll go there's a beetroot and i'll be like oh god <laughs> It's the smell. It just does something. I think there might be something in my brain. Does beetroot smell? Hannah, it smells like Are we talking... rotting. It's got a very odd velvet smell that really freaks me out. Maybe I've got some kind of syndrome, beetroot syndrome. Wow. Possibly, possibly. What has been your most memorable meal? I think I'm going to have to say my wedding uh meal because it was just the most amazing meal we got married in a very small church called Enadoc in Cornwall that only seats 60 people it's where John Betjeman's buried Mm. it's near where I grew up it's in the middle of the sand dunes it's just so beautiful this is 21 years ago so uh, we had our reception in Padstow and 21 years ago not very many people went to Padstow it had had the Rick Stein restaurants but it wasn't really like it is now you can't park anywhere near it and it's Mm. like it's kind of teeming Um, and we had it at uh, Prudhoe House which is on the hill overlooking Padstow and we rented a marquee and we had a salmon um, as the main course at the time and mm. we had um, uh, cake we obviously had the cake but we had meringue with strawberries as well I think meringue and strawberries is probably my favorite meal um, and the lady who was the chef but you you won't remember this she was a dancer in Pan's People um, when Top I of the Pops, you, well, you, you will know from your dad probably, she went Top of I the love, Pops I'm obsessed on. with Pan's people. <laughs> yes, exactly. They, at the beginning of the Top of the Pops era, they used to have dancers come on with them and they were just so glamorous. And I think it was kind of formed 
my love of fashion, what they were going to be wearing on a Thursday night on telly. And I was so oh excited God. that Dee, I think her name was, would be in charge of the was, The whole thing felt so perfect for me. Really? Yeah, because when I was 16, so cool. when I was 15, 14, actually, I, I got tickets for Top of the Pops and lied about my age and got the train up from Cornwall to be in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> and um, claimed I was 16, I was only 14, and then missed the train back and had to sit at Paddington Station overnight. I mean, my parents must have used oh, no God. phones. I don't know why they let me do these things. That is probably a sign of what kind of a teenager I was, actually. Unmanageable. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes, yeah, so that was my wedding um, dinner. Was I love that. So, wait, so the D from Pan's people... She was in charge or involved or in running the catering... I can't remember why, but I was, because I, I think I just blanked out the whole of the rest of the conversation when someone said D from Man's People. There's a Cornish connection. I think That's she must live hilarious. there now. Right. Okay. I love that. What food sums up happiness for you? Oh, that's a good thing. Um, so weirdly, even though I'm not a big toast fan, I think hot buttered toast with jam on um, is the kind of my happy place if I'm if we've done a really big swim and it would have been like 5 a.m or 6 a.m get up time or something like that it just makes me feel it just reminds me of home in a way and watching telly on a Saturday morning in my pajamas when I was little and you know my mum bringing in hot buttered toast really big thick doorstep toast or thick sliced white toast um, with jam and I think that you can't really beat the feeling of it that it brings back and if I'm starving it's a great thing to have as well because it just fills you up but it also makes you feel happy and relaxed as well and and anything associated with swimming for me makes me feel happy and relaxed final question live to eat or eat to live eat to live I think I mean if you if someone said to me you can eat the same meal every day for the next 10 years and it's all sorted for you I'd say oh fine that's fine then (laughs) I don't mind (laughs) As long as it's not beetroot. As long as there's no beetroot in it, then that'd be fine. And as long as I can have coffee. Coffee's the one thing in life I can't. I'm a proper addict with coffee. I often do that. Should I, wine or coffee, wine or coffee, what would you give up? And I always decide wine in the end because I couldn't live without coffee. That My first thing in the morning is a a cup of glass of water, then a cup of coffee. Yeah, I'm exactly the same. Oh, Lorraine, this has been the hugest pleasure for me. Thank you so much for coming on. And also just really interesting to talk about this connection um, sort of between the food and eating uh, with teenagers and sort of finding that connection. I think that's a really, really important um, note to take away from this. You can follow Lorraine on social media at Lorraine Candy. Until next time, bye. Thank you for tuning in. If you love what you hear, please subscribe and review. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Crazy Sexy Food and check out the Crazy Sexy Food YouTube channel. Until next time, bye.